Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. We've said on TechDirt many, many times before that the unfortunate truth is that if libraries did not exist today, there's almost no way that the legacy publishing industry would allow them to exist at all. Uh, that used to be a, a sort of grim kind of joke, but increasingly it's felt to be uh, an unfortunate accurate state of affairs as various moves by mostly by legacy publishers has seemed really designed to make it impossible for libraries to adapt to a more digital future. Uh, the Library Futures Institute is a nonprofit that works tirelessly on making sure that the promise of libraries and specifically the equitable access to knowledge can exist in a more digital world. Uh, the organization is working on a lot of important things around this, including the fact that libraries should be able to lend the content that they own uh, rather than simply having it licensed, often under somewhat ridiculous terms. As part of that, Library Futures has been deeply involved in the controlled digital lending effort, uh, which was a thoughtful and carefully designed setup to allow libraries to treat ebooks basically identical to physical books for the purposes of lending. Currently, uh, a bunch of publishers are suing the Internet Archive over their open library project, which uses controlled digital lending. Uh, recently, Library Futures released a new report entitled Controlled Digital Lending, Unlocking the Library's Full Potential, which explores why controlled digital lending is so useful and fits with the traditional purposes of libraries, uh, while also expanding access to knowledge and giving a much greater return for tax dollars spent on libraries and a variety of other things. Uh, the paper also calls on Congress to codify the, that controlled digital lending is perfectly legal. Uh, Jenny Rose Halperin is the executive director of Library Futures and is here today to talk about controlled digital lending, Library Futures, the new paper, and a variety of related subjects as well. So Jenny, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm really excited to be here. Cool. So to start, can you just explain how controlled digital lending works so that our listeners get a better understanding of what it is? Yeah, um, the paper says that it works exactly as the name implies. Uh, it's controlled, it's digital, uh, and it pretty much mirrors the traditional library system. So the way that I like to describe it, to, I like to describe it, which is in the words of um, Michelle Wu, who wrote the initial paper on which this um, pra uh, practice is based, is that it's loaned to owned or owned to loaned, right? So if you own one copy of something, uh, it can be digitized and lent um, as long as the physical copy remains unavailable. So basically, you know, it draws on library practices that have been in place for hundreds of years um, and translates them to a digital system. And of course, you know, um, it's not seamless. It's not even easy at this point, but we've seen a real uptake from all sorts of groups and organizations and publishers um, who are really interested in exploring how this practice can be used, can be codified, um, 
and can also um, really support libraries uh, in their mission to provide open access to culture in the service of the public good, which is, of course, a big part of Library Futures' mission. And, and you know, the thing that, that strikes me about controlled digital lending is, you know, you think about it, you think about traditional libraries and, and it's, you know, it's really straightforward. They, they can buy these books and then they can lend them out and controlled digital lending sort of just takes that one step further and, and makes it clear that, you know, if you, if you buy the book and you own the book, you can lend out either the physical copy or the digital copy. But, you know, the fear with, with, sort of the digital copies is always that they can be sort of, you know, infinitely copyable or whatever. But the the setup with controlled digital lending is that that is no longer the case. That, you know, as long as the physical book is still on the shelf, you can lend out the single copy of, of the digital version, which is accessible for the limited time that you would lend out, uh, you know, a book normally. So it, it really sort of matches the the sort of traditional setup of, of a library. And shouldn't be that controversial <laughs> in <Yeah>. theory. <laughs> um, yeah. And so the way that a library works and the reason why a library works is because of the first sale principle. So when mm -hmm. you buy a thing, you can do with it what you want. I mean, you could lend it, you could destroy it. Although I think as a librarian, I hope that you <laughs> do not destroy a book. Um, you know, you can donate it, you can um, uh, resell it. But what we see with digital materials is you can't do that. And that's a problem for consumers, absolutely. But um, what it does is in the words of, um, or I guess to paraphrase uh, Jason Schultz and Aaron Perzanowski, who wrote a fantastic book called The End of Ownership, which I highly, highly recommend, is that what it does is because um, digital materials are almost always at this point provided um, except in specific cases, like in the case of the Internet Archive, um, where they are, are extremely um, invested in supporting libraries to own their materials. But in, in almost all cases, other than in CDL cases, libraries are forced to move from um, what some librarians are calling um, an ownership model to an access model. And in the to quote Jason, as I had and Aaron, as I had just said, um, this really creates a, a a situation that is easy to exploit, um, or as they call it, like a market for lemons. Um, it is um, bad for consumers, it's bad for libraries, it's bad for the public interest, and it, it really does inflict harms on them. And a lot of this is caused because, you know, content has moved this way. Um, and so, you know, operating on these models of content that assumes, you know, oh, well, digital is endlessly copyable, so obviously we have to put friction into the system. Um, there is absolutely no evidence that shows that library digitization um, negatively impacts sales. Um, there was a report um, that said that people who, you know, are quote unquote pirates um, often buy much, much money, much, much, much more content and many more books. Um, and I want to get this quote this fact right, so I'm going to make sure that I look at it, but uh, library digitization, according to a recent paper, says that um, it increases sales of physical editions by about 34% hmm. and increases the likelihood of any sale by about 92%. So wow. one thing, um, and it's controversial, 
uh, in some ways, and I don't think it should be, is one thing that I do really want to push back on um, is the idea that if we have something digital, that suddenly um, it's going to become this out of control resource and we have to put the brakes on. But I would also like to say that if we put the brakes on, one excellent way to put the brakes on is to adopt controlled digital lending because it does control. It's copyright respecting. It um, follows the rules of exhaustion um, that are so crucial to, co to the copyright system. Um, and it is not, as some publishing industries uh, lobbyists would have you believe, it is not made up. It is um, based very much in uh, legal doctrine and um, supported by a lot of really brilliant um, lawyers and policymakers um, within the library world. Yeah. And I mean, that gets to the question of like, you know, why, why are publishers so mad? I mean, and so, I mean, there's an obvious answer there, right? And, and, and so, so, so I'm not going to, so I want to ask that question, but, but I do think it's, it's worth for, for people who are listening and might not know and aren't familiar as familiar with this, you know, one of the things that, that is really eye opening is if you see how the different publishers have been um, licensing eBooks, Right. And and they'll they'll put crazy terms on it where it's like, you know, if you could buy a regular like a, a new edition of a of a book that will cost, I don't know, thirty dollars today, maybe. Um, and yet some of these the publishers are saying to to libraries that they have to pay, you know, multiples of that. I've, you know, I've, I've seen different like 60, 100 dollars for a book that they could buy the physical copy of for 30 and then limiting how often they can lend it and say like, you know, you can only lend it for like you can only lend one copy at a time and for like two years or something, then you have to renew the license. There's all of these sort of onerous terms that really demonstrate the difference between ownership and licensing, mm -hmm. uh, and take away from from the way a library has has always worked, and so I understand, like the most obvious answer to the question of why are publishers so mad about it, which is like this was a new business model for them in theory that allowed them to to extract more money out of libraries as disgusting as that feels just in general extracting money from libraries should not be a thing that people are really necessarily trying to do but like is is there something else like do you I, I i guess you're not the publishers so but like do you feel that there's something else to it it feels to me like and this is true across the sort of copyright world is that the sort of those legacy industry players have this weird infatuation with just making copyright as extreme as possible on the principle of it. And so I guess what I'm asking is, do you think the reaction to, to controlled digital lending and the lawsuit against the Internet Archive is driven by purely the, the short-term economic, like we want to be able to, to do these crazy ebook deals, or is it this larger, like we have to we just have to make copyright as, as ridiculous as possible because that's what we do? Whew. Yeah, I, think, I, I mean, I, I, th I think it's complicated. Uh, and so just backing up for a second, I yeah. just want to say that, you know, um, these onerous terms are enacted if trade publishers decide to sell to libraries at all. So, yeah. you know, at this point, we have a situation in which I think 85% or so is estimated because nobody really knows 
of trade publication in the United States is owned by four major player, four to five major players. Um, you know, one of that, is, one of them is HarperCollins, which is owned by News Corp, which is mm-hmm. Rupert Murdoch's company. Um, Viacom and Simon Schuster are one. You know, these are huge media consolidations. Like this is not your mom and pop. Uh, publishing business here. And I see this as somebody whose grandfather worked at Random House. I worked in publishing um, shortly after graduate school. Like I have in some ways um, a lot of sympathy and understanding for the ways in which publishing works. Like it's a business, which in many ways is diametrically opposed, um, although I don't think it has to be, uh, to the ways in which libraries work. but I think um, I do think it is too simplistic to say, well, you know, they're just out here to make money and libraries are just here to give away materials. Uh, li- libraries buy materials. They buy lots and lots and lots of materials. Um, Kyle Courtney, our board chair, says that uh, libraries are in many ways publishers' best customers because they yeah. come back year after year to purchase and they buy in bulk and they buy enormous quantities. You know, you might buy one, but your public library might buy, you know, a few hundred. Um, and so I think um, I don't I don't think it's fair to say entirely that, um, you know, uh, all of this is driven by greed, although I do think there is a lot of straw manning um, in the discussion. So some of the straw man arguments you you hear is that, well, we have to charge that much because it's um, uh, you know, creators have to make money so, or authors need to make money. Um, so first off, libraries have almost nothing to do with author contracts. If I could actually just say, uh, libraries have nothing to do with <laughs> Yeah, contracts. I was about to say, like, which which little part did? Yeah, it, nothing. I mean, right. insofar as like, they purchase a book, uh, right. probably about as much say over an author contract as you have as a consumer. <laughs> over an author contract. Um, so li- libraries really don't have any say over that. So, um, you know, just, and, and then there is also this perception that um, is, in, it, to me at this point defies logic because when you start to think about, you know, how does, how do you lend a book? You know, has, did the publishing industry ever fail because libraries were lending books? And the answer is no, because libraries have historically supported the um, publishing industry. And and I don't know at what point libraries became the enemy to the publishing industry. It's it's really a disaster. You know, you have Maria Palante getting up in front of the AAP and calling uh, people who, librarians who are um, fighting for just more reasonable ebook terms, uh, quote, li- library, lo- what is it? It's library lobbyists and tech funded special interests. <laughs> and, and in the meantime, you know, just, just frankly, uh, the AAP outspent uh, the American Library Association um, four to one. And, mm. um, and, and just just so our listeners are aware, the AAP is the, the, the publishers lobbying arm and Maria Palenti is the executive director and and the the former copyright office uh copyright registrar but now she she runs the the publishing lobbyist sorry just some people were aware thank thank you for clarifying I sometimes forget that not everybody lives in (laughs) but um so you know they they are way outspending you know um they are they and and 
I really evidenced this a few months ago. Um, we put in a statement as the uh, through our political action group, through our 501c4, and just to be clear, the controlled digital lending paper was also written by Library Futures Foundation, which is our C4, um, although I'm absolutely happy to talk about it. Um, but we had um, participated in a state bill in Rhode Island that was part of this trend of what the American Library Association has called hashtag ebooks for all. Um, and I would also put in another hashtag, which is hashtag not all publishers, but we can get to <laughs> get to that in a sec. Um, so these ebooks for all bills, there has been one in New York, there's been one in Rhode Island, uh, there's been one in Maryland that has gotten a, a good amount of press. And so all it says is, hey, publishers, would you please sell um, licenses so we're we have you know for us it's a little bit complicated but will you sell will you sell ebooks to libraries at reasonable prices you know there's testimony from state legislators they say you know if you're opposing this you really need to think about your morals this is so obvious um a number of rhode island li librarians got up and and really movingly talked about the issues within their state you know one librarian shared that she can't get a digital copy of charlotte's web Right. This is this is basic stuff, right? Like these are basic collection building um, issues. This is basic as, as access to information for the people of the state of Rhode Island. And, you know, we have this state testimony. Everybody's on the same side. Everybody's really feeling how important this is and how important it is for people to have equitable access to information. And the last person to get up is an American Association of Publishers lawyer. And he gets up and is basically like, librarians don't understand copyright. You're wrong. We're going to fight this. This is not this is not going to happen. We're going to fight against it as hard as we possibly can. Um, so um, it was shocking, honestly. Yeah. I I could not believe that in this small state um, in which a bunch of librarians were just trying to provide better access to to materials for patrons that you know a, a lot of basically a, a you know a big shot lawyer would come in and just tell us we're wrong and tell us that we um you know don't understand and not even really frankly um give a good reason you know all of this focus on market harms is um completely not data driven there is there's no data to support um any kind of um uh, any kind of claim that um, library lending is um, hurting um, creators in any way, particularly when you see, you know, CEO salaries at big publishing companies and the, the increased consolidation, both of the private, often private equity owned firms that run library resources like an overdrive, which is acquired Canopy, and also when you see the consolidation within the publishing industry, you know, um, again, these are huge, huge companies. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking like, you know, this idea that you can't find a, a digital copy of, of Charlotte's web and it's just like, you know, and, and that has to be locked up to, to inspire E.B. White to write more books, even though he's been dead for 40 years. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the other question is, you know, there's definitely new books that, that we care about, but then there's yeah. an entire corpus of literature, of scientific research, of um, uh, textbooks 
uh, from the 20th century where um, they're probably there. Um, I mean, I'm sure that the estate of E.B. White cares about this, but sure. you know, in this case in particular, probably nobody cares if they're digitized or not, even right. if they're not, even if they're under copyright, they might be an orphan work. Um, and that um, those, those books also can't be digitized yeah. because of, you know, the complete um, stronghold that um, these companies and that these publishers really hold on information. There was this incredibly inspiring article in Wired a few months ago about a researcher who had a hunch from something she had read um, that COVID might be airborne. And so using the power of controlled digital lending uh, through the University of Michigan, she was able to find an out-of-print book that she could only find on the internet for $500 and couldn't hmm. afford for her side project. And using that material that was made available to her digitally, she was able to prove that COVID was airborne. I mean, after the WHO had tweeted, like, fact, COVID is not airborne. <laughs> um, and it was. And right. You know, so this isn't just a question of, you know, um, oh, it would be so nice for me to get, you know, not have a thousand person waiting list for the new Sally Rooney. Like, I'm on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's but it's not it's not about, you know, uh, you know, your Libby account or your overdrive account, although that's definitely part of it. This is about really unlocking the full potential of of having access to the corpus, the full corpus of human knowledge, um, particularly at a time when the Surgeon General has declared misinformation a public health crisis. So we have these two opposing factors um, and these two opposing sides, where you know um, there's a recent debate in which um, someone on the side of the publisher said, well if something's not digitized and it's from the 20th century, like too bad, you, you know, that, that to me is just, is just really sure. not, it's, it's not a, a fair equal or equitable stance. And the, res and the response that some publishers, like the big publishers have had um, to libraries, you know, consistently beating the drum that this has become untenable. There was a New Yorker article just yesterday about it. Like, they cannot afford these resources and they're being exploited. Um, their response has been like, well, I'm more print, right? But, yeah. it, you know, there's climate emergency, there's um, uh, there's pandemics, there's distance from libraries, you know, with, with shrinking uh, local budgets, libraries are closing. Um, and I think that this paper, to bring it all back, yeah. actually does such a great job talking about the real equity implications of why a library might want to digitize their parts of their collection and lend them in an own to loan, um, in an own to loan ratio. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the paper. I mean, the paper really does a great job. It's, it's very quick read and very clear and, um, and, and does a great job sort of highlighting all the different kinds of benefits from controlled digital lending, you know, uh, so, including sort of civil rights aspects, you know, better education and and the economic benefits too for, you know, in terms of like return on taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, um, you know, do, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like what what do you think is kind of the most interesting things to, to come out of the paper? Well, so I, I also just want to make sure that I, I give the, the right credit on the paper. So sure. The, the 
credit was written uh, very much in collaboration with our policy group, um, which has been meeting for a long time. And um, students from the Georgetown Tech Law uh, Clinic, um, led by Amanda Lewandowski, um, and we had an event a few months ago with Senator Ron Wyden and Amanda and folks like Hillary Brill um, and John Traska, who are on our, um, who are part of our policy group. Um, and so I just want to make sure that I give I give yes, credit. Yes. I can write this paper, um, but I do really love it. Um, yeah. And I'm ha I'm totally happy to rep it. Um, so I've I've been really focused, I think, in in this conversation on the on the economic. Um, on the economic parts of this. And, um, you know, I feel like I kind of sidestepped your question of why are publishers trying to lock down copyright so much? And I, I think if I knew I might be, uh, in a different position, <laughs> when I'm in, right. I, I don't, I think, you know, money and, and obviously, um, but I don't, I really don't want to make it, um, so simple. I, I had a recent conversation with someone where she was saying, I really feel for publishers in this time where, you know, things are changing and things are becoming much more digital. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just like, they've had 20 years. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not that new. Like, yeah. Ebooks e are not new. I think e the first ebook was 40 years ago. That's older than I am. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I, I do um, I do see this as, as an enormous consumer protection issue, um, one that affects both consumers, but but as as always affects the public a lot more. Um, but I do want to tell a little story about um, why this matters for education as well. Um, I recently wrote an article for the Daily Beast about um, teachers uh, under the during the pandemic and how um, renting renting materials made it extremely difficult for teachers to to do their job. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and in in the course of that, I heard a lot of stories. But um, I will I will tell one that's pretty close to home, which is that my husband is a public high school teacher here in Boston, where we live, and um, he was trying to get access to the next book he was going to teach when everything went remote very suddenly during COVID. It was an in-copyright book, um, and he didn't have any way to get it, right? Um, there was just at the, the school had other things to care about um, in terms of um, the, the switch to remote. Um, there are systems um, that and and collections that uh, the Boston Public Library has provided, which is which is wonderful, and I, I really don't want to denigrate that. Um, but the book he was teaching wasn't on it, and he couldn't afford to um, spend, you know, um, uh, uh, to spend thousands of dollars on of his district's money on books that they had already purchased right. sitting in a building that they couldn't get. And so is this, what, what is the solution here? Like, as we think about diversifying curriculum, um, we're in this sort of double bind. Like if you can only afford to purchase bestsellers, um, you're very likely um, due to the demographics of, of what books are bestsellers, you're, you're very likely going to be buying books from, uh, you know, mostly white people. And then if you are only able to teach in the public domain, because like, what is the solution? If you have undigitized materials, you can teach from the public domain, like the public domain, while we love the public domain is not 
diverse, right? Right. It's not as diverse as the um, sort of breadth of of world literature that someone like like my husband would want to teach. So, um, you know, what is the option here? He could have licensed the book. Um, one teacher we spoke uh, that Marie Bustillo spoke to for her article that prefaced the one that I wrote, um, she had been spending. $27 per student per year for a copy of the diary of Anne Frank, hmm. right? So um, that's not really an option. Um, or, you know, he can do what many of the teachers I spoke with did, which is somehow find it, right? Like, amazingly, they could somehow find it. So, <laughs> right. uh, I, and I, I will not say, you know, how, how everyone is, is doing this. Um, because in some ways, we don't know, right? These stories are not necessarily being told. But with um, uh, publishers really going after things like controlled digital lending, when control is a major part of what makes it work and copyright respect is a major part of, of what makes library lending work. I mean, libraries right. librarians are the most copyright respecting people I have ever worked with, and I, and I am a librarian myself, right? Like, we are so concerned with copyright, um, and you know, to go after libraries and to go after digital lending when education, um, which is such a crucial part of a library's mission, um, in my city there are I think sixteen librarians for one hundred and twenty six schools. Hmm. Um, so you know, what are um, you know, what are, what are schools without libraries going to do? Um, how are they going to get um, students um, access to digital materials? Um, and that's, and that's, you know, not even to talk about the enjoyment, right? Like many yeah. of my uh, husband's uh, students just liked reading digitally. They could read where they were on their phone. Some people are print disabled. Some, you know, um, he he teaches close to the Boston Public Library, so you know when they couldn't go into the Boston Public Library, like ebooks were really useful and really helpful. Um, and I also think that the enjoyment and pleasure aspect of it, I think we focus a lot on, um, you know, why this is um, educationally important, which it absolutely is. But also, some people just prefer reading digitally, and I think that should be an option that's available yeah. to them. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, we, we've talked about this before, but, you know, I, I think it's really striking if um, uh, Paul Heald had done, has done a bunch of research on sort of the, the um, missing, uh, the, 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 the gap uh, in the availability of works and, and highlighting that, you know, for works under copyright, um, you know, they're available for a relatively short period of time. Uh, sort of widely available, you know, the first five years, maybe 10 years, you can find books after they're published. But then after that, they, they basically disappear and they go out of print until they're back in the public domain. So he has these amazing charts, which are, which are amazing and telling and disappointing <laughs> and frustrating <laughs> at the same time, showing like the availability of works by decade that, they're, that they were published. And you see, you know, the last couple decades, you know, you can see widely available 
and then it gets less. And then by things from the 1980s, they're almost not available. You can't really find them anymore. And then it gets worse and worse, 70s, 60s, you know, all the way down to the 1920s where you finally get some public domain works and suddenly they become available again. And you think about this this massive gap in culture and it's great that the stuff in the public domain is available again, but you 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 know, you're missing you know, eight, nine decades of, of content that is, that is hard to find. And some of it disappears entirely. Even the stuff that goes into the public domain, that's only if there's still accessible copies of it that, that can be reprinted in some form or another. And you worry about how much stuff, you know, how much stuff that was published in the 1950s has disappeared entirely. And there's no way to, to get it back. Um, and so there's all of these things that, that, that I worry about. And whereas if you had digital copies of stuff, hopefully, I mean, there's all sorts of other questions about digital archiving and digital preservation. And that's obviously a lot of what, you know, like the Internet Archive is really trying to work on. And other people are trying to work on those issues as well. You know, hopefully you at least hope that that you, you'll have a sort of better survivability of all of this content as well. And that's that's extremely important to me also. And to quote uh, Maria Bustios in her recent article, Sell This Book from the Nation, the point of a library is to preserve, and to yeah. preserve, a library must own. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that brings up, I wanted to talk about that article because I think th this was really interesting. Also, we wrote about it on, on TechTurt and I know you you uh, helped out, but but Maria had um, is, is part of this Brickhouse uh is it Brickhouse Collective? I forget exactly what it's what it's called, but you know, it's a bunch of writers, like just amazing writers, you know, working on, on a bunch of things, and and they put out a book called the the Brickhouse Quarterly, Brickhouse Apparent Quarterly, mm -hmm. um, and they decided, unlike traditional publishers, that they would be willing to sell a copy of the the ebook. And they sold to the Internet Archive so the Internet Archive could lend it out. And they just like a traditional book, like a physical book that you could sell to a library and then the library could lend it out. They sold a, an ebook, a copy of the ebook that the, the Internet Archive could then lend out. And it's not under licensing terms where they can only, you know, they don't have to pay some crazy amount and then could only license it for, you know, whatever, two years and they have to renew the license or whatever. Uh, and that's the, the article that she wrote was just fantastic talking about, you know, the importance of ownership, even of, of digital goods. So did you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know you were involved. I, I wrote about her article, but since you were involved in the project, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that came together? Yeah, Mar Maria is one of a few publishers who are selling to the Internet Archive at this point. And um, I being involved with the process was, was extremely fun. Um, and yeah, I think that the, um, the reason, the, one of the reasons why I think it's, it's so interesting is because she is willing, um, to, to do something different. <laughs> I mean, to just imagine something different, right? Um, I know that's, uh, this may be a little pat, but all of the publishers, the small publishers, the publishers who are, you know, not part of this big, um, uh, you know, conglomerate, series of conglomerates who, you know, want to, you know, lock everything away and, you know, only care about bestsellers. And I mean, you see what that gets you, like, there is a lot of drag um, out there. Um, <laughs> Can I say, can I say drag? Do I have to? Yeah, that's, that's, 
perfectly uh, uh, perfectly good <laughs> description. Um, but anyway, so there there is there's a lot there's a lot of, of Jack out there, um, and um, you can land you can borrow um, the Brick House Apparent Quarterly and and learn that it is is really a wonderful um, piece. Um, but anyway, so um, I think that all of the publishers who are willing to um, to, to do something different and take the risk and, you know, maybe not um, operate from a scarcity mindset, from the mindset that we have to put all of these constraints on and that, you know, every single time somebody looks at or thinks about a work, it's a potential commercial value, which, you know, might maybe in, you would take possibly take money from, you know, a, a, publish, a publishing CEO, like, I think with with Maria and with folks like PM Press and AK Press um, and uh, Seven Stories Press and, and the many other presses who are small and who are willing to, to try something different. Like, I do think there is a level at which we're waiting to see what happens. Um, and I'm really excited to hear from them to see how this is working for them, you know. Um, my guess is that it's it's going really well. I mean, what do authors really want at, in the long run? They want to be read and they want to be able to make a living from their work. The current way that the publishing industry is set up has been described to me by author friends as like Las Vegas. And um, <laughs> Emily Gould... I think two a few days ago wrote an article that is that used that term that said hmm. that like, publishing is like Las Vegas. It's right. um, you know it's basically a, a like gambling, right? You try um, in, that means that people are some people are getting sixty four million dollar book you know book deals um, because they're taking a gamble. Um, and that is, um, you know, first off, I, I think that that doesn't that's more of like a publishing industry thing and less of something that that really impacts libraries. But because of these huge advances that are paid to an increasingly small number of people, I think in the Emily Gould article, she says that, um, you know, while the literary Jonathans of the late 90s, you know, could expect a, a, a few million dollars in um, royalties and all sorts of different things. I think she said that Jessamine Ward for her second book got a $100,000 advance. Hmm. Um, that, you know, what you're seeing is is with this smaller and smaller and smaller group of people who are getting, who are really making enough money um, as, as authors, um, what you see is an increasing grip on uh, on copyright in on federal copyright and on um, the market and on the industry and, and what you also see is it's consolidation. Um, so you see it in uh, library resources um, all over the place, both you know academic resources and scholarly resources, as well as in um, technological resources. So with overdrive and canopy, which I mentioned. Um, and I and I do think that all of this is is related, and I do think that it's something that should be raising alarm bells for people who love their libraries. I mean, if publishing companies had it their way, uh, libraries would just be uh, you know state funded actors who rent books, right? Like, <laughs> that, and nobody wants that, you know. Yeah. Um, I, Outside I the publishers. <laughs> Inside the publishers, and I really do think it's a small but very vocal group of people 
um, who, who really feel that way. And, you know, and it, I think the thing that, that is frustrating is it's all masked in this like, oh, but we love libraries kind of thing. But if you love libraries, you have to love what they do, which is purchase and lend materials to support culture in the service of the public good. It is about the public. It is about providing the best resources, organization, um, and a high level of privacy um, to users and to patrons, and about really um, supporting learning goals and education goals and knowledge goals of the general public. And so that that that's not just about, you know, can we get the next bestseller? That's about the full range of of human knowledge, much of which is in books, right? Yeah. And if books are locked away from the public because there's some perception that is not um, proven or backed by any kind of uh, uh, any anything other than a hunch or a feeling, like if, if books are just locked away from the public, um, then, um, you know, what are we doing, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, I, you're right. And I think it's fascinating. And there, there's this, this part of me that's thinking like, you know, we have built the, the, the greatest ability to access knowledge, you know, and, and the greatest collection of knowledge, you know, you go back to like the Library of Alexandria, right? Where you had all the knowledge in the world in this one building and it burnt down. And and we've built a, a much better version of that with much more knowledge. And then we lock it up and make it impossible for people to access. And that just like, if you take a step back and you, you try and think logically how that makes sense, it's really difficult for me to come up with, with a, a reasonable explanation for why it makes sense for anyone to, to have all of that information and knowledge and, and ideas locked up. And so, you know, I think it's so important to, to, you know, move this world forward, to have more people understanding the importance of libraries and access to knowledge, um, you know, the, the power of, of digital and the internet to make that possible, to give more access to more people. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I really appreciate all the work that, that you've been doing, all of the stuff, you know, uh, that, that Library Futures has done. And, uh, uh, and, and I'm glad that you were able to come on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. I um I really appreciate, uh, I've appreciated your blog for a long time. And I, I really appreciate you having, you having me. I, um I, I, you know, we're very young, right? We're only <laughs> about eight months old. And so um, I think I am really excited to see, um, you know, what's next. Like, the reason why the organization is called Library Futures is because the, the libraries are moving digital. Like, mm -hmm. like it or not, we are, are moving into a digital space. Um, and digital provides an enormous amount of... Um, uh, potential uh, that I, I think in some ways is yet to be realized. And we really and we really have an opportunity here and are at a crux point um, for better advocacy, for better education, um, and for um, more work to make more materials available so that, you know, in our next pandemic, um, a researcher doesn't have to worry about whether or not uh, she's going to pay $500 uh, for a book that she can only purchase so that she can easily find it and yeah. lend it um, and borrow it from a library 
um, and you know, advanced science. Like this is um, this this could be a a life and death or death situation. And um, I also hope we don't have another pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, we are yeah. there's there's um, uh, yeah, but but you know, who knows? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, hopefully, but it's better to be prepared. Uh, and and just in general i mean you know with or without the pandemic i think i think having access to to this information and knowledge is is so important and it is you know it's it it's incredible to me that this is a fight that we even need to be having and yet you know over and over again i you know i I feel like we have it and and you know i started this podcast out by saying you know that the joke that libraries would not be allowed to exist if if they were invented today um and you know, and, and that was a joke, you know, 15 years ago, that was a joke. And and today it seems increasingly like, you know, the moves that the publishers are making oftentimes feels like they really want to kill libraries. They they can, you know, say all they want about, you know, oh, we love libraries. Everybody says they love libraries. Everybody grew up with libraries, but like, that's not the way they're acting. And so, you know, making that clear and, and, and making it obvious to people, I think is so important. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's really great, the, the work that, that you guys are doing. So I, I, again, you know, th- thanks for, for taking the time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, uh, we, I certainly appreciate it and really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Thanks so much, Mike. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. We'll be back next week. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech.